Hello everyone and welcome back to Latter Day Takes. I'm your host Harper Anderson once again joining you. Uh, today's going to be an interesting episode. I think you all will enjoy it. I know I would say that no matter what, but this one I really mean it. You got three segments, right? We start off with news, but I, I actually don't spend that much time on it. In fact, it's in it's from a week ago, and for whatever reason, it didn't post. It was something wrong with the platform. I was kind of ticked about it. Um, some of you were actually expecting to hear about it because I said, like I'd mentioned it kind of in the intro, and then it didn't actually happen. So something happened with that segment that got deleted on the platform. I don't want to totally throw my platform under the bus, but if it happens again, I will, and I may actually have to switch platforms at that point because that was kind of ridiculous. There was zero a sign of anything going wrong on that end it just didn't post and so here i am posting it this week so i was like you know whatever i'll just save it for next week i'll just call it a wash um and it's a segment that i talk about very briefly for uh i, I mentioned some cool kind of aaron Rodgers story that i that i read about um unfortunately that was before he totally crapped the bed and had a terrible first week i would know he's on one of my fantasy football teams gosh terrible anyway i lost because of him thanks aaron appreciate it actually i do like aaron Rodgers. i think he's probably he's an interesting guy but i, I think he'd be a good hang personally but whatever um so from that i have that segment and then i share a very funny softball story that took place it's kind of a little, little wild a little bit crazy entertaining i think and that's only because i kind of shared it with a couple people who were very entertained by it so here i am sharing it with the rest of you um so anyway i share that in that first segment right that's going to be the first 10 or so minutes and i'm telling you this because you may not want to hear what's in the middle for the middle half hour is just me giving a recap now i i kind of like flying solo but maybe you guys hate it i don't know regardless i'm gonna have an awesome guest next week so you should enjoy you should get excited for next week's episode this guy is kind of utah instagram famous he's really put himself out there he's really taken a lot of risks He's really been kind of like pushing back on the government control, lockdowns, things like that. I don't want to say who it is, but it's in the works. I'm going to sit down with him, have an awesome conversation. I'm really excited about that. He's a really cool, interesting guy. Anyway, so for today's segment, though, I go through and for a half hour, I, I kind of give a breakdown of what happened to me last weekend because on Twitter, I put out there that I was really disappointed in a lot of the BYU blog boys who threw, were so all too quick to throw BYU under the bus. They were all too quick to say, oh, yeah. Sorry, I'm getting the hiccups. Our our fans are racist, right? If they say we are, we must be, and that's a problem, and let's root it out. Let's root out racism. They were so quick to throw us under the bus with zero repercussions, and so I pushed back. I took their screenshots, and I said a couple things, and I put it out there on Twitter, and then chaos ensued. Now, I didn't really interact from there. I actually kind of was like, you know what? I put it out there. I don't really care to fight back on these guys. Um, there were some insults thrown out, whatever. It was to be expected. I had it coming. Like I, I put myself out there in a public, public sphere. It's going to happen. I called these guys out. They pushed back quite a bit. A lot of other people joined in and then called them out. And you know what? I, From what I could tell, there were some conversations that were actually pretty good back and forth, and then others obviously not so good. I, I stayed out of all of them pretty much. Um, I give that whole breakdown, and I give the real reasons why it was so frustrating because I – go figure. These guys completely missed the mark ultimately they say, oh, all I said was racism is bad. And it's like, no, that's not all you said because everybody agrees racism is bad. Gosh, anyway. And I had to refrain from using like certain words so I'm not just not just trying to insult them, right? Even though I'm really coming at them and they deserve it, whatever. So I go through that for a half an hour. Then I end with a spiritual thought. So if you want to catch that, you can just code, speed up to the end. I won't be offended. I think y'all will like this one. I think it's interesting. I think it has to do with mental health Cognitive dissonance and ether, at the very end of ether, talking about cognitive dissonance between Coriantumr, who was the last among the Jaredites to die, essentially, and Alma the Younger. There's a parallel there and how they dealt with things differently. And I share those thoughts. I think you'll appreciate it. I think you'll enjoy it. Tell me what you think. If you think it's interesting or you think I'm crazy, let me know. I like to know when, I, when people think I'm crazy. It's great. So I share those thoughts. I spent about 10 to 15 minutes on that one. So if you want to just fast forward to the end of podcast last 15 minutes and you'll catch it um but i think there's some really interesting mental health implications with what i talk about and that was spurred by somebody on twitter who had actually said that their best cure for mental health was seeing their bishop and basically confessing to them where they were at in life and i could not agree more and i give kind of um 
I don't really give examples, but I talk about how that has certainly helped me as well. Anyway, if you want to catch that, go to the end. If you want to hold, listen, just listen to the whole podcast, right? The only thing, it'll only take you like 50 minutes, right? And just, if you're driving, just sit back, relax, focus, and just enjoy the soothing sounds of my voice. I'm sorry, that sounded very vain. I love you guys. Thanks for tuning again in once again. Uh, we'll catch you on the other side. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Mormons are really nice people. Totally nice. They are the best cult. Have you ever, under the influence of alcohol, questioned the teachings of the Mormon church? Well, these Mormons are so nice. Everybody's so nice. Everybody's so nice in Utah. They're all Mormon, right? Yeah. So they're not Most drinking. Of it, and they're like not cussing. They're like, Slovis, you stink. I'm afraid, I'm afraid it, was it was the Mormons. Mormons. Yes, yes, the Mormons, Mormons were the correct answer. Because God loves Mormons and he wants some more. Shout out to the Latter-day Saints. All right, for today's news of the day segment, I don't have much to share. You know, I kind of like having full autonomy. Sorry about the squeaky chair and such bad timing. Anyway, there's one story I wanted to share. I like having the autonomy to share kind of whatever I want because I can be as negative or positive I want, whatever, right? My podcast, I guess I control that tempo and that temperament. But a story that I saw just today, uh, not too long before I started recording, um, that I really liked, I thought that was really cool, was that uh, Aaron Rodgers, apparently, quarterback of the Green Bay Packers, um, one of the best quarterbacks, quite frankly, kind of in the history of the NFL. He's, I mean, of all the quarterbacks ever to go through the NFL, um, everybody would have him probably around top 20 at least. Some people maybe top 15, uh, others top 10. I don't know. Maybe not top 10. But anyway, um, very, very talented quarterback. Uh, the headline is, Why Aaron Rodgers Recently Found a Book of Mormon in His Locker. And it was really funny because uh, he just kind of was on a show with one of his old uh, teammates, Pat McAfee. And... Um, he was talking about how, like, it's just good to be back in the locker room with a bunch of the guys where it's just kind of like you let your hair down. It's just kind of more like bros hanging out. Um, and he specifically was like, yeah, and then you have, like, all the guys in the corner, the specialists in the corner talking about Joseph Smith. And he's like, actually, okay, hold on. That wasn't a knock on Joseph Smith. Like, it was just because um, Pat O'Donnell, literally, who's the punter, um, uh, actually gave him a Book of Mormon because – uh, Aaron Rodgers was like, looks like you're about to serve a mission when he was like getting on a plane. Cause I guess he was dressed kind of like a Mormon missionary or remember the church of Jesus Christ, Latter-day Saints missionary. And, um, so Pat O'Donnell actually left him a book of Mormon in his locker and highlighted some passages that he thought might appeal to Aaron Rodgers, kind of like pique his interest as well as kind of make him laugh a little bit here and there. So just a funny little story that I thought was worth sharing. I'm sure Aaron Rodgers will get baptized any day now. So just wait for that to happen and then we'll have him on Latter-day Takes. Anyway, um, so the reason why this one's coming out on Thursday, by the way, um, I is because I was trying to get a specific guest on the show. And I even had some people reach out that listened to the show that were very nice, very charitable of them to even think of this and, and to include me and to try and get a specific guest that the timing would have been perfect. And I was like, yes, let's try and do it. Well, the stars did not align, unfortunately. And that is not going to happen. But I don't want to like really disclose what the thought process was because... Who knows? You never know. It could happen later down the road, and I want to keep that relationship intact. Um, just goes to show that there's some behind-the-scenes working for all of you. Um, but again, I really appreciate the help that I received for those that reach out to me and then those that I reached out to to try and see if we could get this guest on to talk about um, some of the timely issues that were going on. But anyway, I know I'm being very vague. I'm sorry. Okay. How I want to round out this segment, by the way. I was reminded of a funny story that I shared the other day with my sister and her family. It has to do with softball league that I'm in. And bear with me here. I've only told this story like once or twice. It just happened like a month ago. And so it may be a little bit scattered. I may have to like kind of go back, recall a couple things and whatever. I just don't want to record this um, 
more than once, quite frankly. Um, anyway, so, okay. I'm in a softball league. It's a co-ed softball league. And if you do not have a full set of 10 players, they give you an auto out. And an auto out means that you're supposed to have 10 batters for for your lineup. But if you only have nine, by the time it gets to your 10th person in the lineup to bat, they just give you an out. That's how they penalize you for not having 10 people. They only do that once. And you can put that person anywhere in the lineup, that auto out. So what ended up happening was that we had two outs. And it was only like the first inning. We had two outs. And I was warming up. I guess I was the next batter up. Or we only had one out at that time. And the team captain comes up to me and he says, Hey, um, we have an auto out right after you. So if so-and-so, who's up to bat right now, gets our second out, you're kind of in a funny predicament. You ultimately have to hit a home run or the inning's over. He's like, or just keep running around the bases until they tag you. And so I'm like, well, that kind of sounds entertaining, actually. So only he and I know about this. He just comes up to me, and that's what he tells me. I'm like, okay, cool. It turns out he actually got a little bit of the information wrong, but that's besides the point. I'll fill you in on what that was later. But so the idea is, is that they have to, they have to tag me to get me out because after you round first base, it's no longer a force out. And for those that are a little bit unfamiliar with baseball, a force out only applies in two scenarios, and that's at first base where they can just throw it to the first baseman and all they have to do is have their foot on the base and if they get the ball gets to them before you touch the base as the batter, as the runner, then you're out, right? We've all seen that before. But they, And they don't have to tag you. That's when it's a force. They don't have to tag you. All they have to do is have the ball in their mitt, in their glove, and they have to just have, the, have their foot on the base. That is a force out. And the other time when a force out applies is when there's a runner behind you. So if you're advancing to second and somebody hits it and they're going to first, you can get forced out at second if the ball gets there before you do and they've got their foot on the base, right? So that's a force out because you can't go back. But there are scenarios, for example, if you have somebody on second base and, a, and nobody on first and somebody up to bat and they hit one, as a runner on second, you have a choice to go to third if you want or stay on second because nobody's forcing you to move forward. There's not a runner behind you by one base. So you have to be tagged in that scenario. You don't they don't they don't just have to catch it on third base and then you're out. That's not a force out scenario. That can't happen. So you can choose to run if you want and risk getting tagged if they're gonna try and tag you out, or you could just stay on second. Anyway, that's the scenario between what is a force out and what it, when you have to be tagged out. So I tell you this because in my scenario there was nobody on base and depending on where I hit it, right? It didn't matter if I made it to first. I just had to keep running. So um, I'm up to the bit. I'm up to the plate. And this first one, I'm like, well, obviously I'm going to swing for the fences. And yes, for the record, I have hit a couple outside the park. But so there is a precedent for this. But it's not exactly, I'm not able to exactly do it on command, unfortunately. And there are guys out there that can, by the way. They can just every time they could hit it out if they wanted to. Um, anyway, so I'm swinging for the fences. I'm like, well, let's do this. Well, it's kind of a high pitch. Not that there's any excuse for this. I'm going all out. Boom. Major whiff. Completely miss it. Which, if you know softball, that's very embarrassing because it's a slow pitch. So I'm like, ah, oh, great. Well, now I just got to hit it and make sure it gets in. So next pitch comes, and I just swing really hard and down. And I hit just outside the infield, right in between the shortstop and the third baseman. So it's just going into left field. And it hits pretty hard, so it's got a little bit to roll. Easily making it to first. Questionable making it to second. But they have to tag me at second, right? Because there's nobody behind me, so it's not a force out. So if I try and stretch this run, this hit, into a double, which would be me getting to second base, then... I can do that, but I'm risking them tagging me, the ball getting there in time, and the person tagging me before I get to the base. Well, I immediately just obviously start taking off the first. Round first hard, and I'm making my way to second. And at this point, the rest of the team, who has no idea what's going on besides the team captain, is like, okay, I guess 
yeah, they've, they've seen me do this before, so they're not like totally surprised, but they're like, that's kind of a stretch. Okay, but he'll probably make it to second. Okay, so I'm getting to second, and the ball comes in, and I just barely beat it, but at the same time, the second baseman doesn't actually catch it. This happens a lot too, is that they miss the ball. Like it gets just by them. It like hits their glove and bounces out or whatever, and so they're kind of scattered. Well, right when I hit second base, I take off for third. And at this point, my team is like losing their minds. They're saying, what are you doing? Like, what is, what, why are you going to third? Why would you risk this? Like, it's just good being on base so someone else can hit you home. It's a lot easier when someone is at, at, at the plate, you're on second, and they hit a single. A lot of times you can get home from that, right? That's why they call them in scoring position at second base. Well, I'm taking off for third because obviously I know what I'm doing. The captain knows what I'm doing. And they're just like, oh my gosh, why is he doing this? So I'm running to third. They make the throw to third, but it's also just barely late. But at that point, they're like, well, surely he's going to stay at third. Like there's no point because he can't get home. They have the ball in the hand, in their hand and they could easily throw him out at home, which by the way is a force out, but that's, a, that's only because this league is, is unique and they don't want collisions at the plate things like that. So if you come past a certain line, you have to commit to going to home and they can just throw it to the catcher who's got their foot on the bl- the base and you're out. That's it. That's all they have to do. So it's actually a very easy out in that scenario. So it's really stupid for me to try and go to home. Anyway, I get to third and of course I'm not breaking any momentum, no stride, nothing and immediately beeline it for home. But there's they actually have the ball just a little bit late, just a little behind me. And I know I'm like, well, I'm just sprinting. I'm just blitzing this. And as I'm running home, I see the ball clearly beats me in time. Like, I'm going to be out. And the catcher's slowly tilting to the left, to the left, to the left, and just misses it out of their reach. And I'm just running right through home plate, and we get the run inside the park home run. I mean, I felt like I was in Little League, and it was like for fourth graders. It was insane. And the whole time, my team is like, what are you doing? What is your problem? You're freaking crazy. And they didn't know about the auto out and that we were going to have three outs and that we were going to be out regardless of where I hit it. Turns out the auto out rule wouldn't even have applied until the next inning anyway if I was on base. Anyway, weird rule. I didn't need to do that at the end of the day, but it made for one hell of a story and it was a fun time. And the other team thought I was the biggest jerk in the world. Well, the BYU blog boys sure came after me last weekend, didn't they? You know what? I brought it on myself, so I'm not complaining. I'm merely highlighting what happened, why it took place, what transpired, all that stuff, giving you kind of the background and the reason why I felt like I needed to do what I did, and the subsequent, I don't know, falling out. That's really not a way of putting it, because there really was no falling out. I think in order to have a falling out, you'd have to kind of be enmeshed in what they do and and I'm certainly not and they would be the first to say that um but anyway so a little background here let me set the scene a little bit for everybody this all circulates around the questionable racist allegations that Rachel Richardson made towards BYU fans right at the volleyball game women's volleyball game that's happened a couple weeks ago it's made it's been a national coverage for the last couple weeks fairly consistently obviously it blew up like crazy uh right away kind of simmered for a bit and then blew up again because you had other things not come to light it was just like other people kind of piling on Stephen a smith talked about it a few times on espn you know lebron tweets about it things like that and so the falling out majorly being that byu just looks bad byu looks like they're a racist institution or at least that they facilitate racism among their fans their students or whatever their culture all that stuff so that's why we're still talking about it today it does seem to be finally dying down but here i am once again covering it hopefully this is basically the last of it but i'm merely highlighting something on my podcast because of things that took place last weekend as i said and you will also by the way hear my squeaky chair throughout this whole process because just that's where we're at right now anyway so Initial reports, right? Just to give you kind of a little background, set the scene. Initial reports say that Duke's women volleyball player, Rachel Richardson, had relayed to her godmother, and obviously her teammates and her coach in the middle of the game, who, by the way, also did nothing in the middle of the game. So, 
Anyway, if you want to apply guilt to BYU, their staff, all that stuff, I guess you can kind of apply it to Duke's team as well in the moment, but whatever. Um, she says it to her godmother, uh, Lisa Pamplin, Pamplin is her name. She relays to her, and this is what Lisa Pamplin says on Twitter verbatim, my goddaughter is the only black starter for Duke's volleyball team. While playing yesterday, she was called a N-word, and she's you know, spelt it out, read it out right there on Twitter, which I guess is okay for, uh, I guess you can do that if you're black. I don't know. Cause I can't, I don't think white people can say the, the, uh, N word on Twitter. I'm not sure about that or anybody else, any other race for that matter. And I don't know, I, I guess that's okay. Um, anyway, so she says she was called the N word every time she served, she was threatened by a white male that told her to watch her back going to the team bus. A police officer had to be put by their bench. That kind of got lost in the mix of this, that supposedly she had been called the N-word every time she served. Anyway, I don't really want to get into this part of it, but that story started to shift as time went by. Uh, Rachel Richardson didn't really make any specific overtures about what had specifically been said to anyone in the media. So that, you know, automatically this kind of starts to come into question exactly what happened, right? Anyway, BYU actually responds immediately, and this is what they said in a long statement. All of God's children deserve love and respect, and BYU Athletics is completely committed to leading out in abandoning attitudes and actions of prejudice of any kind and rooting out racism. When a student-athlete or a fan comes to a BYU sporting event, we expect that they will be treated with love and respect and feel safe on our campus. It is for this reason BYU has banned a fan who was identified by Duke during last night's volleyball match for all... From all BYU athletic venues, although this fan was sitting in BYU student section, this person is not a BYU student. To say we are extremely disheartened in the actions of a small number of fans in last night's volleyball match in the Smith Fieldhouse between BYU and Duke is not strong enough language. We will not tolerate behavior of this kind, specifically the use of a racial slur at any of our athletic events is absolutely unacceptable and BYU athletics holds a zero tolerance approach to this behavior. We wholeheartedly apologize to Duke University and especially its student-athletes competing last night for what they experienced. We want BYU Athletic Events to provide a safe environment for all, and there's no place for behaviors like this in our venues. BYU's hands were obviously tied right away, right? They had to do something. They had to make a statement. Now, I don't really love their statement because what they had subsequently kind of alluded to was the fact that it was all confirmed and that they dealt with it, which, by the way, then they released another statement a little bit later. I'm not going to repeat that one verbatim. But they essentially say, well, we don't actually have any evidence of it. We were just operating under what Rachel Richardson had said and what the Duke Athletic Department had said. And we were just going under that. And they had actually reversed the ban on that fan eventually once the investigation was over because they found zero evidence. But that's not really the point I'm making for this uh, callback to the events. So that's not exactly something that I'm choosing to emphasize in the moment because I'm really hitting on the point of why all the BYU bros came after me. So, which I thought I was a BYU bro, but maybe I'm not anymore. I don't know. Um, So anyway, this is where you start to see two different camps emerge on the BYU side. Those that want to wait for more evidence because the accusation just sounds so questionable. It sounds kind of egregious. The accusation being that somebody was saying the N-word every time she served and apparently nobody did anything. Like just off the bat, because that's the tweet that went viral. That's the tweet that everybody just bought. And you're hearing that and you're kind of like, uh, what? Like, how is that possible? Like, just imagine yourself in the venue and somebody is saying the N-word every time a black player serves the ball and everyone's just like, yeah, uh-huh. Yeah, just another day in the Smith Fieldhouse. Yeah, N-words. I mean, I don't say it, but I don't really care when it's said around me. I'm like, I'll never say anything. I won't bust out my phone to take a recording. Of course not, right? I mean, I'll kick kids out of the uh, testing center for not shaving that day. But the N-word, nah, not as big of a deal as being not clean-shaven to take a test on BYU campus. Like, come on, just for a second, zoom out. You don't even have to zoom out that far. You just have to ask yourself the question, is it possible that you would hear the N-word in that venue every time a black player of the opposing team serves? Anyway, just it's so, it's so comical. It's so comical. All right. And then there's the other side, right? The other camp on the BYU side is that those that immediately accept all of what was being accused and start denouncing racism as quickly as possible. 
This is kind of what BYU had done, and that's what enabled these guys. That's why I don't love BYU statement, and that's why these BYU blog bros did what they did because they felt like, oh, BYU confirmed it, so I'm going to get on top of this as well and also going to denounce racism too, and I'll get to that in a second. And I'll tell you why I have the problems with that, right? Because I don't care what BYU says. You're supposed to be able to look at this and pick it apart on your own, right? Just just use reason and look deeply. Just not even that much deeper, but just to look a little bit deeper. But anyway, you have both camps starting to fight a little bit, myself included, obviously. That's why I'm talking about it. And you've had, you've, you have bad actors on both sides. Like, no joke. Like, there are guys that I'm going to mention and I'm going to talk about their, uh, their, their tweets. Some of what they tweeted came in response of people sliding into their DMs and saying things like, um, just calling them out and like probably being pretty rude. And, and that's, that's where I would like to separate myself. I don't think I've been rude. And I mean, you be the judge. Maybe I'm wrong. I don't think I've been rude. I'm just sitting, saying it pragmatically. Um, and I get that they probably were attacked in ways that were unfair. And I, and I would like to think that I wasn't one of those. I definitely came at some of them, but I don't think I took any cheap shots. I certainly didn't call any names or anything like that. But anyway, so you do have bad actors on both sides. It's obviously happening and it's going to happen. However, the side that ticked me off the absolute most was the side that was saying those that wanted to wait for more information were part of the problem, so to speak. And I'll read more of these tweets to you in a bit. And this is going to be the longest part of this segment because I'm going to go through these and I'm going to be on tangent after tangent after tangent, I'm sure, just to warn you as I go through and, and cite these, these specific tweets. I'm going to do that actually right now. So pulling these tweets up. So you have Robbie McCombs, very, very big name in the BYU Twitter world, saying things like this, right? I'm just going to go through it. Imagine if your daughter was called a B word by opposing fans, which side note, it's kind of crazy that Robbie McCombs is comparing the B word to the N word. Let's just say that right now. That's nuts because the B word, although said to a female is very strong and should never be done is doesn't really compare to the n-word in my mind but he thinks so apparently so anyway and then he keep, goes on saying she came home and told you this would you say hey let's wait for the videos to come out and see what everyone else says or maybe you misheard no you'd be on her side this isn't going away we can want better i kind of uh, disagree with that inherently i mean obviously i'm gonna comfort my daughter if she comes home and said i was called the b-word and i'm gonna say hey that's terrible what i'll tell you like, I, obviously, I'm going to be on her side. Yes, you're right about that, Robbie. But with that said, I'm not going to then rally the troops and be like, let's go take our pitchforks and go to the guy's house that called my daughter the B word. And it's not because I wouldn't believe my daughter. It's because it's like, hey, that's all right. If these people are going to be terrible, then, you know, we're just going to deal with this on our own internally like talk about why these things happen, all that stuff. You deal with that internally. Now, maybe that's because this is a bad comparison. That's why I'm saying that. Because if it was the actual N-word, I don't know. I mean, I don't know. It's just a bad comparison from the get-go. So I don't really get what Robbie's trying to say here, I guess. But in short, he goes on to say, this will always live with BYU. That's part of the problem is that it shouldn't. But we're allowing it to by saying crap like this, Robbie. You, the stuff you're saying. You can choose to question it or advocate for a zero-tolerance policy for racism and to advocate for race anti-racism at BYU, which anti-racism is so freaking ridiculous. But anyway, like that term just is so stupid. You can't just not be racist. You have to be anti-racist. It's like, okay, whatever. Cool. Even if this was false, I want to find myself in the latter category. Yeah, okay. We get it. Like, no, like we, no one wants to be in the racist camp. Like, you get that, right? Everybody wants to be in that camp with you, Robbie. And just by saying that you want to be in this camp and that these camp exists is inherently implying that there is another camp that exists that other people would want to be in, which is the racist camp. But anyway, whatever. And then he goes, we all love BYU. I get it. Rachel is the most important and making sure other minorities feel safe in future is right with that. If you care about BYU's image, let the investigation take care of itself and think about how we can improve race relations at BYU. Like, okay, sure, I guess, because there's always room for improvement, sure. Statements will come out if it is proven false. You'll make yourself and BYU look racist if you keep pushing back. That's, that's ridiculous. What are you talking about? How, and, and he says that's the perception. It's like, I don't care what the perception is. If it's a false or a questionable allegation, it does not make us look worse for questioning it. That's the problem. And if you're feeding into that... That is, that is, like, are we not supposed to stand up for ourselves? 
Are we not supposed to believe that we can't? We, we may not be part of a racist institution, and if we're not, we should say so and make our point in the process, or we should just say, all right, I guess if you say so. I mean, we'll look into it, but if you say so, then I guess we are. No, Robbie, I'm sorry. It doesn't work that way. It does not work that way. Not in a society that I want to be a part of, at least. And he goes on and he says, it's not a bad thing to acknowledge BYU's and the church's race, race relations history and ask for continuing improvement and zero tolerance. Okay, I may have actually shared some of his out of order, but the principle is the same. So anyway, I got, go. I got a lot to get through, folks. Sorry. So you're going to have to hear about it. So Steve Pierce, I mean, by the way, I don't actually know any of these guys personally, so maybe that's ridiculous for me to do. I don't know. Anyway, Steve Pierce uh, at Post Gymmer, this guy, this guy is just a riot. I'll tell you what. So he quote tweets somebody talking about the racial slur, the report. It's some just journalist reporting on it. And he says, this shouldn't need to be said, but Heather Olmsted no showing to a meeting where the Duke player subjected to a racist abuse in her gym is an awful look for her and for BYU. And then he says this, too, as he quote tweets the statement from the BYU Cougars athletic department. He says, fine enough words from the athletic department, but the fact that not a single one of the BYU fans sitting around this person thought it was their responsibility to step up and confront blatant racism happening in front of them is a stain that no press release can wash off. It's, that part cracks me up because legitimately Steve Pierce here, by the way, actually thinks that the N-word was said and that nobody did anything about it. Like, that's his stance. His stance is officially, well, clearly they're racist, and they're not going to do anything about it. Okay, Steve, whatever you say, man. Like, like anyway. So, by the way, his Heather Olmstead stuff clear, cleared up. Tom Homo apparently wouldn't allow her to go, because he's like, no, let me handle this. I'm the athletic director. I'm going to be at the meeting. Like, there's just so many things that could go wrong in all this. Like, let me just oversee everything. You just do your thing. Like, just keep at it, keep coaching, all that stuff. Makes total sense in my mind. But no, not showing up makes her racist, whatever. I think Steve Pierce did actually address that in a later tweet. Whatever. I just love the fact that he says, there were tons of BYU fans sitting around for sure when the N-word was being said. No, 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 no time to question any of this. Just take their word for it and just believe that, yeah, these BYU students exist and they're all racist. They hear the N-word and they don't do anything about it. Okay, thank you, Steve. Appreciate that. Chad Clough, who, by the way, is probably a pretty nice guy. I don't know. He seems pretty nice. I mean, all these guys are probably pretty nice guys. Um, but don't, I mean, that doesn't stop me from pointing out problems where I see them. So, Chad Clough says, please read this statement and let its spirit guide us to be better. And then he quote tweets also the official statement from BYU Athletics and says, don't be racist. Now, the reason why I even wanted to point out Chad Clough's tweets is because there's an inherent problem that I have with these. Not that saying don't be racist is wrong. Of course, don't be racist. Like, we, of course, we, we all agree, okay? Don't assume, like, by saying don't be racist, you are saying there are people out there that you're pointing this tweet towards uh, that apparently they're okay with racism. Like you you are suggesting that that is the case. And that's the problem that I have. And then there's something that is going to come around full circle that I'll talk about later in a little bit. Jeff Hansen. Um, he's, he's a pretty big one out there on Twitter. Um, so Jeff Hansen's approach was also very similar in the same vein as all these. So Jeff Hansen says... My mentions are flooded with this thought this morning. Because a lot of people kind of went after Jeff Hansen, I guess, like kind of like me, and were saying, how about you apologize to all the BYU students? This is a different person saying, how about you apologize to all the BYU students you slandered as racists and a-holes? That would be the professional, ethically moral thing to do, especially you being an LDS member, da 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 Which I don't know about bringing the church into that personally. But anyway, so Jeff quote tweets that, and he says, my mentions are flooded with this thought this morning. no. I won't apologize for calling people who let racism happen a-holes. Only he wrote that out. Whatever. I'm thrilled an investigation has so far found no N-words. Okay, but you're still okay assuming that these people are racist just based on a singular report by a single person that don't you dare question because apparently that means you're racist. Okay, whatever. Even though it's so outlandish what was being accused. But okay, whatever, Jeff. We're living in your world, I guess. I'm thrilled that nobody heard it and let it happen. Cool. Thanks, Jeff. Appreciate it. Anyway, Jeff goes on. This whole thing is bigger than one player at Duke, and that seems like the thing that the wait for the facts crowd is missing. The minute this story hit the newswire, it was about 
BYU has a racism problem. Proving or disproving this one story doesn't change that narrative. We know that BYU has had racism problems. America has had racism problems. Everywhere has racism problems. Digging heels in and having tunnel vision on one story to prove or disprove racism existing is short-sighted. BYU believed this player and reacted immediately. Lastly, if your response to a black athlete saying they heard a white student call them the N-word is, thanks athlete, I'll wait for the facts now, then you are still part of the problem. Racism cannot exist and improvement will take time and there will be speed bumps. Oh, okay. So we're just supposed to take their word for it, even though it may be questionable and it may be false, which by the way is kind of all signs pointing to that, but questioning it is hindering progress. Or... Perhaps the fact that it may not be true, we can actually mitigate the real issue, which is that people can call anybody racist and everybody's supposed to stop and say, okay, then we must be racist until we take three weeks to figure this all out because you said so. That apparently is the camp that all these guys are in so far, especially Jeff Hansen. All right, a couple more. I got another one from Steve Pierce. I meant to mention this one earlier. Steve Pierce says, Folks, I cannot tell you just how absolutely enraged and embarrassed I am by this BYU racism situation. It's like, I know all too well we have these problems in our community, but when we just try to turn a blind eye to it, we get called out for it. Infuriating times 10,000. You gotta love these crocodile tears. Like, my goodness. Like, these people are just using this as leverage to prop themselves up and say, actually, I've been aware of this in in our society, in our specific community. Not even society, like in our community, like in Utah, we've had a racism problem. And I've known about it this whole time, so this is actually no surprise to me. But it's still so infuriating because people still turn a blind eye. What blind eye, Steve? It didn't actually happen. Did you ever consider that? My goodness. It's Anyway, Joe Wheat. This is one we're rounding it out with. Joe Wheat says, no, and, and this is in no particular order. I'm not like saving the best for last or anything. I think Steve's were by far the best. Joe, Joe Wheat says, this hurts my heart and makes me beyond angry. Unacceptable from the fan, the students around that fan, and BYU, who apparently did nothing to stop it. The fact that they're so willing to just throw their people under the bus, this institution that they proclaim to love, by the way, in an instant, like not even thinking twice about it, I, I, I'm astonished. I'm astonished by that. Like, why? What, would, what makes you want to support this organization in any sh- way, shape, or form? Maybe they shouldn't do that maybe they shouldn't do that but we'll get to that in a second so i posted the screenshots of all these tweets on twitter all the ones i just read and said the following this was my own my own tweet with these screenshots the statement from byu is solid this was the statement by the way that said we weren't we didn't find any racism actually like sorry it came to this but we did our investigation we feel like we're pretty thorough and by the way it did seem thorough they opened it up for everyone and they said here are the videos all the videos we have everybody look at it if you happen to find anything, let us know because we're all ear- like we're all open ears. Like we will we will believe anybody what they say. If they find something, tell us, please. Anyway, so um, and then they say we've actually reversed the ban on that fan because we found no evidence of racism and we've talked to them and we've done our investigation and there was no allegations, no witnesses, no corroborating evidence of any kind that shows that there were actually racist words being thrown out there. So they reversed the ban on that fan. I thought that was a good job. Good job by them. Anyway, so I said the BYU statement is solid. But it reminds me that there were, that there were supposed to be BYU blog slash fanboys who were all too ready to throw their beloved university under the bus. The irony being that they believe they actually cheered and supported an institution they also believe could just as easily be racist or facilitate racism. Whereas all of us who were a part of the problem, as some of them said, by wanting more information, refuse to believe that BYU we love is racist. Anyway, so... After that, they came after me. The floodgates opened, and I knew what I was doing. I knew it was going to happen, whatever, whatever. It was a Friday afternoon. I was like, let the games begin, I guess. I had a pretty busy weekend, so I was more than happy, you know, to not really look at Twitter, and I wasn't planning on really responding anyway. I think I responded to one of them, and I was being very sarcastic in that response, but even then, I wouldn't say I was particularly rude, Uh, but they came after me, right? I put myself out there. That's fair. Totally. I was expecting them to. Uh, it makes total sense. I picked a fight with all of them, quite frankly. Most of them tried to be dismissive. Not surprising. My favorite part was actually that some of them immediately attacked my small following compared to their own large following. Uh, it's all relative. 
which made me laugh as if it's why I do this, right? To do this for my followers or to gain a large following or that I hold any value in the number of followers that I even do have. And even more props to them for uh, letting their followers dictate what they think they want them to hear, right? Uh, clearly, what apparently if they care so much about their followers, they must be tweeting things along those lines of what they think their followers want to hear. That at least adds up in my mind. That's why they say what they say. Um, and that's kind of what's gotten them into the trouble that I'm pointing out right now. Trouble obviously being relative because I assure you they don't think they did any wrong. They merely pointed out racism where it took place or maybe didn't take place. Great for them. Good job, guys. It's no surprise that their reply is a reductionist argument of I stand by what I said, in quotes, racism is bad and not seeing the real point of our gripe, which is don't be so ready and willing to throw your own people under the bus just so you can have yet another moment under the BYU Twitter sun. Again, that was never the point. Nobody said racism is good. Nobody said, nobody said by saying we weren't racist that we approve of racism. But no, you guys reduced it down to that. Oh, all I said was racism is bad. And if you have a problem with that, you must be the racist one. Yeah, because that's all we were saying, guys. Holy Moses. It doesn't even take that much to connect these dots. But apparently more than three is just way too much to ask all of you. The demand for racism is outpacing the supply. And why is it outpacing the supply? Because of people like this, the BYU blog boys, they use it as an opportunity to prop themselves up more than anything. And if you really dig into the premise of that desire, it's not just disheartening, it's scary. Because if your first inclination is to use social justice as a way of getting social accolades for being someone that would denounce racism, which again, we all do, then we've got a huge problem with a lot of opinion leaders being more concerned about their own image than trying to repair the social problems that actually exist. And it's likely because these social problems are more nuanced and require more critical thinking than merely just banding together against the N-word. Critical thinking, guys, that's what we're talking about here. Which, by the way, this didn't even require very critical thinking. Why am I getting riled up? Because of the pansy asses being so quick to fold in the face of criticism or accusation or whatever. And it makes me wonder, if they're going to kowtow to the criticisms of bad actors over something so outlandish and ridiculous from the start, the N-word being said every time she served, and furthermore, even point the finger at the accused as if there were no question complicit in the terrible behavior, at what point do they stand up and actually be bold? I guess only they can answer that question. And in the meantime... While these Twitter celebrities are massaging each other, you have the opportunists who have always had a gripe with BYU, the church, Utah, etc. A lot of national pundits here who seize the moment in piling on and saying things like, BYU is always racist. The church has always had a racist problem, which I guess apparently Steve Pierce would agree with that. That we're seeing, we're just all seeing this today, right? We're still seeing these problems exist today. Or even better, the head coach of South Carolina women's basketball, Don Staley, canceling a series between them and BYU women's basketball, because that makes sense. Women's basketball from an entirely different university is canceling a home and home series because they need to teach BYU a lesson. Which lesson, by the way? I don't know anymore because it's based on false premises. And in the meantime, I've never seen more black people band together in opposition to these unverified racist allegations against BYU. I mean, it's amazing. I mean, you got Jason Whitlock. You got Officer Tatum. You have so many very outspoken uh, black opinion leaders that are in a political arena, in the sports arena, whatever, that are saying and defending BYU. And in the meantime, we have our own pansy asses so quick to throw us under the bus. Stephen A. Smith actually gets up on first take, who, by the way, really went after BYU initially. And he actually says this. This is a quote verbatim. He says, when we're willing to jump to race too quickly, what we do is dilute the profound argument of racism and prejudice when it really occurs because people are hearing it so much that they think we're whistling into the wind. We need to make sure that when we make those assertions or those allegations about other people, that they are as close to irrefutable as we can get. So nobody is accusing us of making something up. That's why we had the problem in the first place. But you guys, you blog boys, were so ready to just believe it. And not only that, furthermore say, oh, if you're looking for more evidence, you're part of the problem. Which is literally exactly the opposite of what Stephen A. Smith just said. He says, we deal with when we do that, when we do what these BYU blog boys did, we dilute the profound argument of racism. 
And he's actually saying, maybe we need to actually make sure these assertions and allegations about other people are true and they're irrefutable or AKA more evidence as you pansy asses like to say was apparently a wrong thing to do. But anyway, sure. BYU blog boys, you played a pretty sweet game for yourselves by being able to say, I was the first to denounce the racism that definitely took place at BYU while also condemning those that don't condemn it as quickly as I do. And now that there has been zero evidence of racism taking place, you're able to say, I stand what I've always said. Racism is bad. And if you're going to criticize me for saying racism is wrong, then that's on you. Oh, good to know that you think racism is bad while apparently nobody else did. It's a cool little shift of the goalposts that you guys were able to do so quickly and so eager. But let me ask you this last question. What do you think is more racist? Wanting to believe something racist did happen or not wanting to believe something racist happened? All right, time for the gospel slash spiritual thought segment. A couple things. I'm actually going to be a little bit sporadic in some of my, what I want to share today. So uh, one thing I saw on Twitter, I actually saw this uh, a few weeks ago, but I really liked it. And I meant to mention it on one podcast, forgot. Here it is. I came across a tweet and it says, I, person I don't know, just happened on my timeline, came across it. I started taking the gospel more seriously this last while, met with the bishop one time, and I already feel 90% more clear, mentally healthy, and at peace than I have from meeting with therapists twice a week for the last two months. The church is true, y'all. I really loved that tweet. It, it kind of moved me in a specific way because I've been there before. I've done therapy. I've talked with bishops. Nothing beats pure, just unfiltered repentance. And I say unfiltered specifically because I think a lot of times people do hold back. You know, they might try and kind of tweak exactly what they've done wrong. And I say that, and I make that assertion because I've done that as well. And I promise you nothing has ever been more beneficial than being 100% completely honest. I actually think that's why repentance has to take place. There are studies that show when you confess something truly to another person that it is, it, it, it gives you some clarity of mind, it gives you some peace. And I think it's really because what you are conveying more than anything is intellectual honesty, which if you're aware of what that is, is just honesty with yourself. Because at the root, I believe, of all mental illness is intellectual dishonesty. I think that's when you start to see your two anchor points start to separate. When you start to be dishonest with yourself, you have two anchor points in your lives that start to grow apart because you have one that's actually reality and you have the one that you have as perceived reality. And the perceived reality is when you lie to yourself. That's when you want to believe something when it might not be true. And the more intellectually honest with yourself that you are, those two anchor points become one. But they start to separate, and that's where mental illness can take place. So if you do go and convey the most pure form of intellectual honesty, which I believe is confession, specifically to a trusted bishop, right? That's why we have them. You will start to feel that peace. I truly do believe that. And I actually quote tweeted that and added to it. And I said, this is the secret to mental health. And then I said in parentheses, it's not really a secret. Um, If you're feeling depressed, if you're feeling anxious, consider that. And maybe start small. Maybe start by just writing something out. Just writing something out that you are just kind of addressing and saying, you know what, I need to I need to be forthright about this. I need to write really what the reality is of the situation. Write it out, clarify it. And then at that point, you may feel good enough and you may say, you know what, maybe I need to take this to someone, a trusted source, maybe a bishop, something like that. Uh, that would be my suggestion. Anyway, I just wanted to share that kind of randomly because I thought it was really important and really helpful. Um, okay, another thing I want to talk about. Uh, I love the parallels in the Book of Mormon that we see. I'm going to talk about this for a second, and then I'm going to talk about a little bit of a lesson that I learned uh, not too long ago, reading in Ether as well. I just was reminded of my notes as I was looking through them uh, because I was also still reading in Ether and I actually just finished. But anyway, um, really cool to see Mormon parallel the life of Moroni, Captain Moroni, so much so that he actually obviously hails him as a hero. Mormon was the one that basically... You know, he was the editor of the verse in 
what is it, Alma 47? Shoot, I can't remember off the top of my head. But it's the very powers of hell being shaken if all men were like unto Moroni, right? Mormon wrote that verse, right? Mormon was the one that was conveying that message to everybody because he revered Moroni, Captain Moroni specifically, to such a high level. And he even named his own son after his hero, which is really cool. So not only do you have that parallel, because later, I mean, we're talking, what would it be? Like, it would be 400 years later when Mormon is being, being he, he becomes the editor of the Book of Mormon and writes that all down. And he mimics Captain Moroni's life very much, where he becomes a very young leader of the army. Right? I addressed that on a podcast a few weeks ago. I believe it was the age of 16 when they called him to be kind of like a captain of the army. I don't think he was the general. Maybe he was, or a general. Maybe, or maybe he was the general. I don't know. It's, it's, it's kind of hard to tell for sure. But regardless, he was a very high leader within the military for the Nephites. And you don't think he looked at Nephi, or looked to Captain Moroni for advice through the scriptures, saying, like, how can I be more like this man, right? He absolutely did, I'm sure, and then wanted his son to be just like him as well, right? But what's funny is that his son Moroni paralleled a lot more with the life of the prophet Ether, who comes in and gives this narrative. And Moroni, you can tell by the way he writes, he really reveres Ether to a high level as well. He talks about, in different scriptures, how Ether said these magnificent and glorious things, but Moroni said he couldn't share because he was told to not share what Ether had said in that book, in the Book of Mormon. For whatever reason, you know, obviously the Spirit telling him, well, the Gentiles won't be ready to hear this, or maybe it won't be as applicable. I don't know. But clearly Moroni revered Ether to a very high level. I wouldn't be surprised if he named his son Ether. And then furthermore... Ether, if you remember how the book of Ether ends, it's uh, Coriantumr who kills uh, Shiz, right, at the very end. It's just Shiz and Coriantumr that are basically, like, exhausted. They're on the hillside, and everybody else on both sides has died. Coriantumr happens to wake up first and sees Shiz, cuts his head off, Shiz dies in a fairly gruesome manner, and then Coriantumr just sits there, exhausted from, in many ways, not just physically, but I imagine, I don't even know if spiritually is correct, because he may not have had the spirit with him, but emotionally, I imagine he lost his entire family and people that he loved, all because he was so prideful, he didn't want to give up, right? Shiz actually said, we'll save all your people if you just give yourself up and Coriantumr refused to do that. Maybe it was a hollow promise by Shiz, so maybe that's why Coriantumr was like, it doesn't matter. But that wasn't the point. Ether said repent, and he wouldn't do it. And then Coriantumr finds himself in this position. But Ether, from there, obviously isn't going to hang around Coriantumr. It says in a scripture here, too, and, and this is what I wanted to kind of save for a little bit towards the end of this segment, but um, it says that Coriantumr began to repent. This is right at the end. It's 15.3. Began to repent of the evil which he had done. This is after he killed Shiz. Oh, wait, no, sorry, sorry. This is actually before. I'm getting ahead of myself here. This is before he kills Shiz, but the problem comes right in that verse. It's, uh, it's Ether 15.3. And he says, he began to repent of the evil which he had done. He began to remember the words which had been spoken by the mouth of all the prophets, and he saw them that they were fulfilled thus far, every wit, and his soul mourned. And here's the kicker. It says, refused to be comforted which I find fascinating. So obviously Ether's going to look at this guy and he's like, I don't know if I really want to hang around this guy. Like he was never listening to me. Um, so I think I'm probably just going to go my own way and go alone, which guess what? That's exactly what Moroni did, Mormon's son. He died alone. He died trying to flee the Lamanites. Well, he did flee the Lamanites. He was able to bury the Book of Mormon, the gold plates, all that. So he must have identified with Ether on a level that is really hard for a lot of us to relate. And so that's pretty tender to me to think that he had this hero as well. He probably took a lot of comfort in after losing his father, his family, all of the people that he loved. He sees the same thing in Ether due to the pride of others and the war that was just caused the ultimate destruction of his people. So anyway, I thought that was really cool. Those two lives and how other two lives in the Book of Mormon and the, in the plates that they were uh, basically curating uh, paralleled their lives also. So... Going back to that thought, I thought about that. This was months ago, actually, that I thought about this, and I was reminded of this thought when I would kind of go back to look at my notes, because what I like to do is I like to record notes in a Google Doc. I've started dating them, which has been effective. I like doing that, but that was recent. 
Um, and I like to put it in sequential order. So that way, if I'm reading an ether, I can look back to see if there's what anything in the past that I wrote that came to mind in that part of ether. So turns out there was actually, actually the last time in ether 15, I did write down some words and I was looking back at it and I was like, oh yeah, that's right. I remember thinking that, feeling that anyway. So this is what I wrote. This was after that verse in 15.3 where it says, Coriantumur, his soul mourned and refused to be comforted. Now, I feel like there was actually a time in my life when this happened to me. I'm not going to really get into details, but I could. I felt like I could identify with that concept. And I want, I'm curious if anybody else out there could identify with that too. Um, but sometimes even after we repent and try and change, right? Because it says he Coriantumur began to repent of the evil, which he had done. So even we're, we're repenting and trying to change... And our souls will still not receive comfort. I'm not sure why. And so I wrote down some questions. Is it because we had gone too long being so disconnected to, from the Spirit? Maybe. It says later in chapter in that same chapter, in verse 19, that the Spirit ceased striving with them, and Satan had full power over the hearts of the people. Maybe that's why. It's not that his soul was refused to be comforted. His soul didn't have the capacity to be comforted by the Spirit. It was gone. Satan had full control over their hearts. I wonder what it means to have a soul that refuses to be comforted. I'd imagine Alma the Younger felt a little bit like that for maybe part of the three-day period that he was suffering, right? And as he was kind of basically in a coma. It wasn't until he remembered the words of his father, by the way, that he started to be comforted to the point where he could remember his pains no more. I guess one of the differences between Corey Mantimer and Alma the Younger is Alma the Younger continued to process his pain and discomfort. It lasted three days after all. Three days is a long time, which by the way, something I pointed out years ago is the fact that we don't talk about a lot uh, enough probably is the fact that Alma the Younger had zero clue that was going to take three days. Doesn't that kind of change the dynamic of his mindset? For all he knew, it was going to be eternity. Can you imagine thinking that for th three days, minutes into this you're like, oh my gosh, I am a damned soul. I'm going to feel this way forever. Because when we look at that retroactively, when we see the story and we read it just in a few verses, we think, oh, three days? I could probably power through for three days, right? I mean, I'd, yeah, it wouldn't be easy. If I could grit my teeth, I could probably do it. I've fasted 24 hours before and I've grit my teeth through that too. Now, obviously, I'm being a little facetious there. But my point is, is that that mindset I mean, really, Alma the Younger was like, oh my gosh, I don't know what I'm going to do. This is, this, is this my lot in life now? Am I, am I done? Have I died and gone to hell? And is this hell? And am I never leaving? Really makes you more sympathetic to what Alma the Younger must have been experiencing then. But like I said, what I think, one of the differences is that Alma the Younger started to pull back and he started to go back to kind of trying to remember the words of his father. And so that's the difference between Alma the Younger and Coriantuma, right? It's those two anchor points, which essentially what I'm talking about is cognitive dissonance. Coriantumer wouldn't allow his own cognitive dissonance to put him into spiritual action. That spirit was gone. He doubled down in his anger. It talks about anger a lot when talking about Coriantumer. And it cost him the life of everyone around him and ultimately led him to die alone. Whereas Alma the Younger looks at his anchor points and he's like, you know, I may have had a weird upbringing considering that my dad was once an apostate in a different king's court but you know what my dad really is a good person and i can acknowledge that and that was him with the beginning of intellectual honesty which kind of brings us full circle to the segment and he says perhaps in that moment my dad really is a good man and i can acknowledge that now and once he starts to acknowledge that honestly i would imagine as it says in the scripture so i don't even have to imagine it, it actually says this in that sequence in alma that he starts to feel comforted when he remembers the words of his father. I really think what he's doing there is being honest with himself. I think he's saying, I truly know what is, what is the truth here, and I cannot deny that. And then boom, those two anchor points stop drifting, and they start to merge, and they become one. And what is reality is what is truth, and he starts to accept that. And then what happens from there? Alma the Younger becomes one of the most memorable prophets in the Book of Mormon, and his lineage essentially carries out the rest of the Book of Mormon. We have prophets that are just his sons and his grandsons and his great-grandsons. It's really cool. And that's the power of being honest with yourself. That's where it all starts. If you need to address something, if you have that, you know, if those mental deficiencies, if you're feeling depressed, if you're feeling anxious, 
maybe it's time to be honest, address the reality. It'll work for me. I promise you that. Anyway, that's going to sum it up for me. I hope you all enjoyed today's episode. It was a little bit unique. It was me going on a major rant there in the middle, but I felt like it was something that needed to be addressed. Don't let my Twitter misadventures affect you too badly. Detract from the spiritual segment because I think this is really why I do the podcast. This is why I want to make it unique. So I hope you all enjoy that. Let me know what you think. Give me some feedback. Would love. I mean, I've, a lot of you have reached out and it's been awesome. And you guys have given me so much courage to keep going. Really, really appreciate it. And I will keep going. If you have any ideas, please give me ideas. Very, very, very excited about my next guest that's going to come next week. That's going to be a fun one, guys. Um, so gear up for that. I'll tell you right now, he's pretty well known on the Instagram world, specifically in Utah, and also has been very much voicing his opinion when it came to the lockdowns. And he led a charge to really kind of try and um, not not just try, he really pushed back against it in ways that were very powerful and uh, really made our government take what I felt was like the right action. Anyway, it's going to be a great conversation. I'm looking forward to that. I hope you are too. We'll see you all next week. Love you all. Have a good weekend. To a different time. Old love, I remember falling so madly. There must have been magic in the valley and a rhythm in the night. I could almost see it Did you fade right out of you? If it takes time